Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Blessed Father, we thank you for the great joy to reopen your word, to hear it proclaimed. But we ask humbly and earnestly, let none of us hear your word in vain. Let not your word fall to the ground, but we pray that it will be empowered by the eternal blessed Spirit of God reaching the hearts, reaching the souls of each and every person here today. And Lord, especially for us as your people, we pray that there will be a greater, a deeper, a further sanctification in our hearts and our lives because of the truth of your holy word that we are about to hear. May it be this day that we are truly conformed even more to the perfect image of your perfect Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God this morning and let's open up to the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 where I want us to go. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5 to verse 3. Verses 1 through 3. Let's hear the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal God, may we hear it today with profit. Having spent the last four weeks camped out in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we sought to answer the question why Paul the Apostle was not ashamed of the gospel. In answering this question, we actually answered an even larger question, which is, what is the gospel? This morning, we will begin a new teaching series addressing another critical question. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? And where we will seek the answer to this inquiry will have us fixed in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. In this portion of God's word, we have contextually the introduction to what is the most famous sermon ever preached, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon preached by our Lord Jesus covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But where Jesus begins this sermon is in the aforementioned Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. And this passage in particular has come to be known historically as the Beatitudes. It is very significant that Jesus begins his sermon here. 
because the Beatitudes are a description of what a Christian is as opposed to what a Christian does. In other words, before our Lord impacts how his people are to live a righteous life, he first underscores the necessity to be a righteous person. Or to say this another way, the Beatitudes show us what God's grace must first make us as a people before we ever consider to live by God's standard. So then the Beatitudes reveal what every Christian should be like in their character. That is in their character that results from the work of God's saving grace. Also, the Beatitudes teach us that all Christians are meant to manifest each of these characteristics as a whole. In fact, as we will see, there is a logical sequence to these characteristics. One beatitude leads in logical succession to the next so that we cannot divide them or separate them, but rather as we pull back and look at them as a whole, we see a complete picture of the new nature resident in every true believer in Jesus Christ. We see, therefore, in the Beatitudes, the genuine character of a real Christian. Hence my reason for taking us here to answer this question, what is a Christian? Now this morning, I want to draw your attention to only the first of the eight Beatitudes that are given in our text. In Matthew 5 and verse 3, Jesus declares, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. From this one declaration, I want us to ask and answer three central questions. First, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Second, how do we know if we are poor in spirit? And then third, what do we receive as being poor in spirit? But before we move forward to answer these questions for our exposition, there are two important things we need to, need, we, we need to notice briefly from our text. First of all, Matthew tells us here in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus sat down, opened his mouth, and taught his disciples. These words were not written to merely fill up space. They are telling us important matters. The fact that Jesus sat down indicates that what he was about to speak was to be taken in a more official, authoritative sense. This was the common understanding for Jewish rabbis in that day. When they stood and spoke, it was more informal, but when they sat down, it was to teach and be remembered. Furthermore, Matthew tells us that Jesus opened his mouth. This was a significant expression, common in the first century, to introduce someone's message that was especially solemn and important. It also implied a message that was being shared in a deeply heartfelt and intimate manner. Hence, this sermon of Christ was to be received by his hearers as that which carried supreme authority and was of utmost relevance to their lives. Second of all, each beatitude is introduced with a benediction. Blessed. Blessed. What does this mean? The root meaning of this word in the original Greek is to be happy or blissful. But we must not take this definition and apply it to modern cultural ideas of happiness. To be, to be the man or woman who is blessed in the biblical sense of this, of this term is to be a person upon whom God's blessing, favor, and acceptance abound. 
It is describing someone who has found their ultimate satisfaction and joy in Christ. They live in fellowship with God and are at peace with God. God's grace and mercy and love rests upon them out of God's good pleasure and sovereign choice. Hence, it is the poor in spirit who mourn and hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. It is these and these alone who are truly blessed. Well, with these things before us, let's now turn to our actual exposition of Matthew 5 and verse 3. And let's raise our very first question. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We notice again the words of our text. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To begin unpacking the meaning behind being poor in spirit, we need to first underscore what it does not mean. We need to begin with the negatives. First of all, to be poor in spirit has nothing to do with financial poverty. It has nothing to do with financial poverty. There have been many people throughout church history who have sought to impose this kind of meaning upon these words. In fact, some misguided Christians have given away all their possessions by thinking that this would make them poor in spirit. But they have missed the meaning completely of our Lord's words. Second of all, to be poor in spirit has, has nothing to do with a bad self-image where a low self-esteem or morbid introspection dominate the mind. There are Christians who are just constantly putting themselves down, never accepting either compliments or personal encouragements. But what they end up doing to their own demise is actually aping a false humility, which they have deceived themselves into thinking is a real humility. The truth is these actions only betray a subtle, self-centered pride. And finally, to be poor in spirit is not taking a nervous or weak demeanor. Anyone who thinks that by appearing reclusive, quiet, lacking any kind of courage, is somehow being poor in spirit. Anyone who takes that kind of view of it is sadly mistaken as to what Jesus is actually referring to. Well, what then does being poor in spirit really mean? When our Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit, who or what is he describing? In the first place, let's just consider the terms our Lord uses. The word translated poor comes from a Greek verb that means to shrink, to cower, or to cringe. In classical Greek, the same word described people who were brought to total destitution. They were the people whom you would see curled up on the street corner pleading for help. Therefore, this term did not indicate someone who was simply poor, but begging poor. In addition to this, we also must take into account the very biblical idea of being poor. We have to remember that our Lord is not describing poverty from a classical Greek mindset per se, but, but from a biblical mindset, specifically within the framework of the Old Testament scriptures. To be poor was a technical term for a particular group of people. A people described in Psalm 34 in verse 6 as someone who cried out to the Lord and was heard and saved. In Psalm 40 in verse 17, the psalmist actually describes himself as poor and needy and petitions the Lord to remember him and deliver him. And many other references in the Old Testament classify someone who is poor as being weak, 
helpless, completely lacking the resources to either defend himself or save himself. Moreover, the poor are those who are needy and the captives who seek God as their only refuge and salvation, according to Psalm 69. The poor, therefore, are those people who know themselves to be impoverished and bankrupt of the world. Hence, their trust and hope is not found in anything from the world, but in God alone, who is their rock, their shield, their protector, their deliverer. Now, if we take in this biblical meaning of poor and add to it our Lord's words in spirit, what then is our Lord describing? What kind of person is this? To be poor in spirit is depicting a person who has come to recognize their own spiritual poverty apart from God. In fact, this person may be very rich in the goods of the world, and yet they've come to see the hard, cold realities of their own spiritual condition as totally destitute. They are hopeless, helpless, and lost without Jesus Christ. Thus, a person who is poor in spirit is absent of pride, self-confidence, and self-assertiveness when they think of their standing before God. They've come to see that their own righteousness and all their supposed goodness is nothing but filthy, rotten, stinking, putrid rags in the sight of holy God. They have nothing, therefore, to offer God as a means of gaining his acceptance or favor. Instead, they see themselves, they see themselves as they really are in their sinful, fallen condition. They are not good people, but evil. They do not have good hearts, but desperately wicked hearts. This is a person who is poor in spirit. Teasing out the meaning of this spiritual condition even more, consider what A.W. Pink wrote. To be poor in spirit is to realize that I have nothing, am nothing, and can do nothing, and have need of all things. Poverty of spirit is a consciousness of my emptiness, the results of the Spirit's work within. It issues from the painful discovery that all my righteousness are as filthy rags. It follows the awakening that my best performances are unacceptable, yea, an abomination to the thrice holy one. Poverty of spirit evidences itself by its bringing the individual into the dust before God, acknowledging his utter helplessness and deservedness of hell. It corresponds to the initial awakenings of the prodigal in the far country when he began to be in want. So then to be poor in spirit is the weighty realization of our worthlessness as sinners to save ourselves and make ourselves right with God. It is coming to see the truth of what God's word reveals about our sinful state. That we are slaves to sin. That we have come short of the glory of God. We have missed and always miss reaching and achieving God's approval. Our natural birth has left us impoverished of real righteousness and goodness that God would accept. We therefore have nowhere else to turn but to God in Christ to save us and make us right in his eyes. This is a person who is poor in spirit. 
But there are two things that must be said here in the light of what it really means to be poor in spirit. First, to be poor in spirit is where salvation begins. It is where salvation begins. In other words, unless we, unless we see our own spiritual poverty for what it is in all its worthlessness, we will never see our desperate need for Jesus Christ to save us by the riches of his grace. In fact, until we are poor in spirit, then none of the other graces Jesus mentions in these Beatitudes will be true of us. Poverty of spirit is the foundation of all the other graces that follow. But then second, we must recognize that to be poor in spirit is a work of God's sovereign grace in the heart of the sinner. Now listen to this. No sinner becomes poor in spirit on their own. Left to ourselves, we are full of pride, vanity, and self-confidence. But what's worse is that left to ourselves, according to Romans 3.11, we will not even seek God ever in a saving way. Our sin has blinded us all into thinking that we're good. We're righteous people and God should feel grateful for having such wonderful people like us. That is the insanity and that is the madness of our sinful hearts. Therefore, to become poor in spirit can only be a work of God in our hearts. God and God alone must bring us to see and feel the spiritual impoverishment and devastation of our souls as sinners. But, since this is a work of God in our hearts, then from understanding what it means to be poor in spirit, we now need to move to the next important question. How do we know if we are poor in spirit? How do we know? The English Puritan Thomas Watson answered this very question in a manner that is deeply helpful and frankly hard to improve on. So I will employ Watson's answer with my own fill-ins. How do we know if we are poor in spirit? What's the evidence? What's the fruit of this grace? First, we are weaned from ourselves. We are weaned from ourselves. This means that if you are poor in spirit, you have finished with all your self-preoccupation. Your self-absorption has given way to Christ-absorption. Jesus is now everything to you. Your world center is not you, but Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul wrote to the Galatians, but Christ who lives in me. And why is that? Because Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. So to be poor in spirit is to be weaned from ourselves. Your world center is not you but Christ. Second, we treasure Christ above all others. We treasure Christ above all others. Like the man in the parable, 
Matthew 13, 44, who found the hidden treasure in the field. And we're told that in his joy, he sold all he had and bought that field. This is a man who is poor in spirit. He has come to see Christ as his greatest treasure. He is willing to lose all to have Christ. He is willing to lose everything this world can give him to have Christ. Moreover, his longing is not only to have Christ, but be with Christ and to even be like Christ. He desires above all things that his own life would be in growing conformity to the image of Christ himself. That is someone who's poor in spirit. They treasure Christ above all others. Third, we are never satisfied with our present spiritual state. We are never satisfied with our present spiritual state. To be poor in spirit is to always see the need to grow in greater sanctification. We will not settle for where we are in our fellowship and knowledge of Christ. We will not settle to just coast with what grace we have. We will always want more of what God has for us. On this point, Thomas Watson said this, Though he dare not deny the work of grace, yet he mourns he has no more grace. This is the difference between a hypocrite and a child of God. The hypocrite is ever telling what he has. A child of God complains of what he lacks. The one is glad he is so good, the other grieves he is so bad. We're never satisfied with our present spiritual state. Fourth, we are humble in heart. We are humble in heart. What, what do we really have to be proud of? Honestly, have you ever really thought of that? I mean, what do we really have to be proud of? Whatever we have, whatever any of us have, is what we have received. Whatever we have is what we have received. None of us are self-made. None of us. And the poor in spirit see this very clearly about themselves. Poverty of spirit therefore creates and develops a growing humility of heart. We can see this in the Apostle Paul, for example. In his early writings, he said that he was the least of all the apostles. Then in a later writing, he declared himself as less than the least of all the saints. But then toward the end of his life, Toward the end of his life, he simply calls himself the chief of sinners. What do we make of this? What do we make of this in Paul? It is the process of sanctification growing in Paul a deeper humility. And this is the result of being poor in spirit. Again, consider what Thomas Watson wrote. As the ship gets to the haven more by the benefit of the wind than the sail, so when a Christian makes any swift progress, it is more by the wind of God's spirit than the sail of his own endeavor. The poor in spirit, when he acts most like a saint, confesses himself the chief of sinners. 
He blushes more at the defect of his graces than others do at the excess of their sins. Hmm. Fifth, we will spend much time in prayer. We will spend much time in prayer. One writer noted, just as the physical beggar begs for physical sustenance, the spiritual beggar begs for spiritual. The point is, by being poor in spirit, we know our dire and desperate need for God in all things. God's people, therefore, are a praying people because they are a people poor in spirit. Sixth, we will take Christ on his own terms. We will take Christ on his own terms. The poor in spirit declare by their lips and lives that Jesus is Lord. They take up their cross and follow Christ, denying, dying to their selfish ambitions, crucifying their covetous desires, killing their egos and all their pride. The poor in spirit do not try to have Christ yet keep their sin. No. They obey Christ and part with their sin. They take Christ on his own terms. Finally, we exalt God for his sovereign grace. We exalt God for his sovereign grace. The poor in spirit do not take credit for their salvation. They do not seek to pat themselves on the back for making the right decision. Rather, they bow themselves before God and thank him alone for the salvation they have received. They realize it was not their merits that saved them, but God's grace for them in Jesus Christ that actually saved them. They are debtors to grace and mercy alone. So, how do we know if we're poor in spirit? What's the evidence? Well, let's review our seven answers in the form of seven self-examining questions. Are we weaned from ourselves? Do we treasure Christ above all others? Are we always dissatisfied with our present spiritual state? Are we humble in heart? Are we much with God in prayer? Do we take Christ on his own terms? And do we give God all the credit for saving us? Do we exalt God's sovereign grace? If we are poor in spirit... If the fruit of spiritual poverty, as we've just seen, is in fact true of us, then we have one more major question to raise. What do we receive as being poor in spirit? The answer to this question is very simple and straightforward from, from our text. Look, looking again at Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God heaven the kingdom of heaven represents the rule and reign of God 
And those who receive the kingdom of heaven are those who or those people in whose lives God's rule and reign has come to dwell. To say this another way, to receive the kingdom of heaven is to belong to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is to no longer belong to the kingdom of this world which lies in the power of Satan. It is to be a citizen, as it were, of a divine kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom of God and of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. So then, to those in whose lives God has brought to see and feel the weight of their sin, to those in whose lives its power of enslavement and its condemnation under God's wrath is felt, to such people who behold their true spiritual and moral bankruptcy, theirs, Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because only these people, only these sinners who come to realize their sinfulness will flee from their sin and fly to Christ as their only salvation. These are the poor in spirit. These are sinners who've become true believers in Jesus Christ. They and they alone are genuine Christians. But what about you? Are you poor in spirit? Do you know anything Anything of this, of this work of God's grace in your own heart and life? Do you know anything of this? Possibly after hearing this study today, you're seriously doubting. You're having great doubts. And if so, which might be most of you, I'll leave you with one great exhortation. Okay? Okay? Stop looking at yourself and start looking to Jesus Christ alone as your only hope, your only trust, your only confidence to be right with God. Be absorbed with Christ. Be captivated by him. Be captured by his grace and love and mercy and redemption. Know that outside of Christ there is no other way to God and therefore be finished once and for all with what you can do to save yourself. Affirm with that great hymn by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, where he says, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Can you say that? And I'm not asking if you can simply recite it. I'm wanting to know, can you say that with a conviction of heart? Can you say, yes, that is what I believe. That is the essence of my faith. I bring nothing, nothing as a contribution to save myself, to redeem myself. Nothing in my hand I bring. I simply cling only to Christ and what he has done to save me. That's the faith of the poor in spirit. Or another hymn. Can you say this? Just as I am. And waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of of God I come 
The poor in spirit, they look to no other but Christ. To no other but Christ. They see no other hope, no other confidence, but in Jesus Christ alone. That's where it all begins. That's where it all begins. Do the, do, do the proud, do the self-righteous, do they come to Jesus? No. No. Only those who've come to see by the grace of God working in them their spiritual impoverishment who come to see how truly bankrupt they are as fallen sinners and therefore their only hope, their greatest need is Jesus Christ and him alone. And so I ask you, are you poor in spirit? May God give you the grace to answer honestly, to answer truthfully, answer sincerely may God give you the grace to look to Christ alone amen let's pray our heavenly father we pray Lord God that for anyone here today that is yet to be brought to that place of where they realize only by the work of your grace their own spiritual impoverishment Lord we pray that you will bring all such sinners here to that spiritual realization, the realization that can only be worked in a sinner by the work of the Spirit of God. Lord, we know and we confess that outside of you, left to ourselves, we are nothing but full of ourselves, And we're driven by nothing but the love of self. but by your sovereign and omnipotent grace you bring us to see the truth the truth Lord of not only who you are in your greatness as our only hope for salvation but the truth of who we are in all our sinfulness and how that we cannot we cannot in any way under any circumstances possibly bring anything before you, Lord, that will merit your favor and acceptance. We are completely bankrupt as fallen sinners. And so, Father, we thank you for the grace in Christ you've shown us that you have visited us with in great omnipotent power that has indeed rescued us from ourselves. And for us, Lord, as your people, 
who have closed with Christ in true conversion, we pray that in the process of our sanctification, may there be a greater mortification of our remaining pride and a greater and deeper growth of true humility. We plead in earnest, Lord, for these things that only you can work for the glory of your name and for the good of your people to be more conformed to the image of your Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we ask all these things. Amen.